I'm Taylor. And welcome to this week's episode of Square Mile of Murder, the second and final part of the Moira Anderson case. Yes. Um, so when we last left you in last week's episode, um, we were in the Scottish Central Belt just outside of Glasgow in the na- late 1950s, which is when the disappearance of 11-year-old Moira Anderson during the blizzard had uh, continued to go unsolved and had fallen into the cold case file pile. Cold case pile. (laughs) Cold case file pile. Yeah. So this week we're picking up with the case in 1992. We would only be a year old. Oh, Babies. They were so cute. (laughs) When it was finally given a second look... Uh, and we're going to look at the story of one woman who, quite honestly, is one of the most amazing women I've ever read about. Yeah. And her lifetime's work to get justice for Moira and for all children of abuse. Born in 1949 to parents Alexander and Mary Gartshore, Sandra Brown was only eight when Moira Anderson vanished. Uh, like Moira, Sandra grew up in Coatbridge to a working class family. Um, although her home life was arguably more chaotic and dysfunctional. Uh, As a child, Sandra was subject to emotional abuse at the hands of her father. Sandra was friends with Moira's younger sister, Marjorie, as a child, and remembers well um, the time when Moira went missing and how the story became something of an urban legend in the Coatbridge area. Uh, Parents would tell their children not to go too far or they could end up like Moira. Sandra grew up and attended college and then the Open University, where she achieved an honours degree and later a master's in education. She moved away from Courtbridge, although we're not entirely sure where to, possibly Edinburgh, which is where she now lives. Uh, Sandra worked as a primary school teacher and a lecturer. So, like all those who were kids in that cluster of North Lanarkshire towns in the 1950s, Sandra remembered Moira Anderson disappearing and that the case had never been solved. Moira was never found. Uh, But it wouldn't be until a family gathering in 1992 that solving the case and getting justice for Moira would basically become her life's mission. Yeah. Um, So on February 2nd, 1992, Sandra returned to Coatbridge for her grandmother's funeral. Now, this was the first time Sandra had seen her father, Alexander Gartshore, since 1965, when he had walked out of the f- um, on the family and moved to the city of Leeds in West Yorkshire. Gartshore was a known pedophile, sex offender, and straight-up rapist, and he had served various prison sentences throughout his life for these things. But um, it was an offhand comment made to his daughter at his mother's funeral that would shed new light on Moira's case. Sandra had had absolutely nothing to do with her father for almost 30 years and she'd never really made any connection between him and Moira Anderson's disappearance. That was until he said to her at the funeral that his father, Sandra's grandfather, had never forgiven him for the Moira Anderson thing. Hmm. I mean, that's a pretty damning thing to say, isn't it? To your daughter, who was just a few years younger than Moira and who grew up with her sister. Yeah. And he told Sandra that his father was convinced he'd killed Moira because he drove the bus the day she went missing. And he told his he told his father that he had been the last person to see her alive, but also that he didn't know her. Hmm. Which doesn't make any sense. No. Um, unless it's just like, oh, I didn't know her, but I recognized her picture. Yeah, maybe. But, I don't know. And uh, Gatshaw told Sandra he had been questioned by the police in 1957 and told them he didn't know her or what happened to her. That's that's just a big old bit of family trivia to drop at a funeral. Um, following her father's revelation, uh, Sandra, who was 43 began asking her mother about her childhood and, in particular, about a two-year period between 1957 and 1959 when her father was supposedly in the hospital 
um, but the children were never allowed to go and visit him. And it turned out that rather uh, than suffering from a long-term illness, Gardshore had been in prison for two years for having, quote, carnal knowledge of a child. And that is 1950s speak for a man aged 37 having sex with a 13-year-old girl. Yeah. And let's be crystal fucking clear about this. That is rape. Yes. That is two years for rape. No amount of makeup, short skirts, high heels, change the fact that a 13-year-old girl is a child and a child cannot consent. And the age of consent in the UK is 16. So when Sandra pressed her mother for details, she told her that the girl's name was Betty and that she had been Sandra and her siblings' babysitter. Um, rather than be outraged, disgusted, you know, horrified that her husband was raping their babysitter, Sandra's mother, um, even in the 90s, when they were talking about this, said that Betty was, quote, a wee tart who had been around all the bus drivers. Lovely. Lovely. So, so not only is she blaming a 13-year-old for being raped by her 37-year-old husband, She's saying it was okay because all the all the other bus drivers raped her as well. Yeah. I'm I'm just just making sure that we all have this crystal fucking clear. Yeah. Just real real lovely sentiment there. So when confronted with this, Gartshore claimed that he um was never given the chance to turn over a new leaf. He complained once again that his own father never forgave him for raping a thirteen year old. Uh, when his wife and mother had both forgiven him. Aw, did the poor little rapist get held accountable for his actions? If two years in prison can be classed yeah, as being held really. accountable. Yeah, it's not really. I mean, good. Because where was, where was her chance to turn over a new leaf and forget the past when him and his mates were raping her? Yeah. Yeah. And this guy does not seem to be repentant or remorseful or no. changed in any way. Uh, He's just whining because he got caught. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, after learning all these wonderful things about the family history, um, Sandra began to dig deeper into her father's claims that he had been questioned and cleared by police. She asked her aunt on her mother's side if she remembered her father being interviewed about Moira's disappearance. She found that when Moira disappeared, her father was out on bail for the rape of the 13-year-old babysitter and had managed to keep his job driving the local buses. Because, of course. Um, a few nights after she disappeared, Gart Short left the house one evening telling Sandra's mother and aunt that he had to be interviewed about Moira. When he returned... Hours later, he told the two women that he had been interviewed just because another passenger told police that they had seen Moira getting on his bus, but he claimed he didn't know her and had nothing to do with her going missing. Uh, this passenger had told police that they heard the driver saying, Hello, Moira. Gatshaw explained this away as being another young girl named Moira Liddell but census and other record checks that have been carried out in more recent years showed that there was no family called Liddell living in the Courtbridge area in 1957 who had a daughter named Moira. Hmm. Seems like bullshit. Um, Just a bit. <laughs> uh, so although Sandra's mother and aunt had been convinced by Gartshore's claims, his own father was not so sure. Shortly after Moira went missing, Gartshore completely refurbished the kitchen in the family home and had done some work for other family members. His father was convinced that Gartshore had hidden Moira's body under the flooring, and he tore the new kitchen apart, ripping up the floorboards and tearing out all of the new fixtures and fittings. When he found nothing, he then went to the other family members who um, Gartshore had done work for, and again, ripped up the new flooring his son had laid and once again tore out all the fixtures and fittings. But uh, he didn't end up finding any trace of Moira in any of the family homes. And can I just point out, this is 1957. And whilst we absolutely are not 
in the business of giving cookies to men for doing the absolute bare fucking minimum of being a decent human being. His father actually had absolutely no fear about accusing his son and essentially destroying multiple family homes. <laughs> Looking for Moira, he didn't care about, you know, saving face of it. Pretty taboo, especially back then, to be, like, accusing your own son of murder. Yeah. Um, and, or, you know, distancing the family from any accusations. And I think it's quite remarkable for the time, especially when the women in the family are blaming his other victims for ruining his life by being raped by him. Yeah. No, it's um, I just... It's it's very bold and brave to be mm. like, oh yeah, I think my son is a murderer, and to just yeah. like go balls out about it. Um, so good good on you, Grandpa. Yeah. Um. Uh. So as Sandra began asking more and more questions about her father's actions in February of 1957, she found her family was very divided about things, um, which, understandably, um, some were willing to help her, and she discovered that some of her cousins, as young as six, had been abused by her father, but others said she was a vindictive bitch hell-bent on revenge and that they would cut off contact with her if she persisted with the matter. But persist she did, and Sandra's next move was to contact the police and ask them to reopen and reinvestigate Moira's disappearance, this time looking closely at her father, which also badass, like, yeah, it runs that in the is... family, skipped a generation, I think. Yeah. So Sandra contacted an old school friend, Billy McCloy, who was now a police inspector. Billy had grown up in nearby Airdrie in the 1950s and was familiar with Moira's case remembered her going missing and never being found. And Sandra asked him to discreetly check if Gatshaw had ever been interviewed at the time about Moira. But these old files weren't digitised and he would need a good reason to be looking through them. So he advised Sandra to go to the police and tell them her concerns about her father. And he also told her that if what her father had told her was true there was no way they should have missed him as a suspect at the time and he should have at the very least been interviewed. Yeah. Billy McCloy arranged for detectives Jim McEwen and Bobby Glenn to visit Sandra at her home in Edinburgh a few days later. They brought with them the boxes of files labeled Moira Anderson Inquiry 1957. McEwen, McEwen told Sandra that there was no trace of her father's name in any of the files from the original inquiry in 1957, meaning that he had never been interviewed by the police. They also said that multiple witnesses had confirmed Moira getting on a local service bus, but police at the time had decided not to make this public for reasons known only to them. Um, Sandra asked McEwen and Glenn if they would be reopening the case and they informed her that the case of the disappearance of Moira Anderson had never been closed in the first place. The original files contained handwritten statements made by witnesses who boarded Gatshaw's bus alongside Moira that afternoon in February 1957. And I think we talked about some of these in last week's episode. So one said that Moira got on the bus behind them. Another that they saw, saw Moira getting off at the depot. A third uh, that the bus driver, who we now know to be uh, Alexander Gatshaw, had greeted Moira by name. Uh, yeah. Another witness saw Moira fall in the snow near the bus stop before picking herself up and walking onto the bus stop when the bus pulled up. And the original investigators dismissed all of these witnesses as being mistaken. Of course. And the original police reports make absolutely no mention of the name of the bus driver. So Gatshaw's name is not anywhere. He's just simply referred to as the bus driver. Yeah, how could how could like six different people be right? That's yeah. crazy. It's impossible. Um, some of the original investigators dismissed witness statements saying that they had mistaken Moira for her older sister, Janet, 
Um, because, you know, as we mentioned last week, the two sisters looked very much alike and people often mistook them for twins. Um, now this is, uh, incorrect for two reasons. The first was that all of the witnesses knew the Anderson girls, um, after all their parents, Sparks and Maisie were well known, um, and well thought of in the Cobridge area. So the children were also well known. And those who knew them well could tell the difference between Moira and Janet. And the other reason why this was incorrect. Um, Possibly the most the important more, reason. You know, the, the most pressing issue here is... Concrete. <laughs> concrete proof. They weren't mistaken. Yeah. Um, Janet was actually away that weekend, staying with family who lived on the coast. So... Couldn't have mistaken Janet for Moira because Janet wasn't even in town. So, there you go. So, here we have multiple witnesses that all corroborate each other's stories. All point towards Moira getting on a bus, or getting on the bus that was driven by Alexander Garshaw. The two of them knowing each other. Yet, Garshaw was immediately cleared as a suspect. Well... Actually, he was not even really ever considered a suspect to start with. Yeah. And hold on to your hats. Because this is one of the worst excuses I've heard for clearing someone. <laughs> so he was cleared because one of the original investigators, John McDonald, dismissed him because he was known to drop off little old ladies at their houses and kids gave him sweets when they got on the bus. Oh. Okay. Great. Uh, mm, I I don't really have words for that level of stupidity. Yeah. And at this point, he's on bail. Yeah. For raping a thirteen-year-old. <laughs> for crimes. <laughs> yeah. He's a man who does crimes. It's so. Yeah. And. Yeah, so police instead chose to focus on Ian Simpson and Moira's Uncle Jim, who we talked about in last week's episode. Yeah. Now, uh, by the time the police had cleared Uncle Jim and Ian Simpson, Gartshore was in prison. Um, he was sentenced in April 1957 for the rape of 13-year-old babysitter Betty. And when Sandra and the current detectives looked through the old files, it appeared to be an out-of-sight, out-of-mind kind of attitude towards uh, Gartshore. Despite all the evidence pointing towards him, um, because he was already in prison, the police didn't really seem to want to pursue him any further. See, if he'd been given, like, a really lengthy prison sentence where he was going to die in prison, mm -hmm. I can understand them not pursuing any further. I don't think it's right. Yeah. But I understand why they do it, because the CPS do that now. The Crime Prosecution Service do that now, because they only take a case to court if they think they're going to win. And if, if it's a kind of not really a slam dunk kind of case, and this person's already in prison for life, they're not actually not going to take it to court. Yeah. Unless there's, like, extreme public pressure. Yeah, and plus there's, but like... But he got two years. Yeah. Two fucking years. So, and also, not exactly out. It's kind of out of sight, and we'll see you in a couple of years. Yeah. Well, and also, like, it just seems like you'd still investigate, and yeah. if you found something, you'd still sort of. Know, put all the pieces together it's just like oh yeah that guy he's coming up a lot this seems real suspicious oh but he's just been sentenced to two years in jail we'll leave him be he's had enough trouble oh I just oh here are the cops they're coming oh i can hear <laughs> now they've gone again <laughs> so now um you know everyone is convinced of Garshaw's guilt and Detective Jim McEwen mapped out Moira and Garshaw's last known movements on that day 
to try and work out where the two could have gone after leaving the bus depot and try to pinpoint any burial sites. But as we said last week, uh, the Courtbridge area is still filled with mineheads, mineshafts, mine pits, uh, collieries, bogs, marshes, and the old Monklands Canal. So there were so many places wherein the body of a young girl could have been hidden. While the police were investigating the case, um, Sandra was speaking to relatives and old school friends and found out that at least four of her cousins had been sexually abused in some way by her father when they were children. Um, And they came forward in 1992 and gave statements to the police. There may have been more, but um, these were the ones who made statements. And Sandra um, had also had a number of school friends who were banned from playing at her house or even from being friends with her and her siblings. And she began tracking them down in 1992 and found at least one who had been sexually assaulted by her father and had told her mother, who had then banned the little girl from playing with Sandra. Um, And she also made a statement to the police. And like with the cousins, there could be more More. victims. It's just that that's the only one we know about who then made a, a police statement in 1992. Yeah. And by the sounds of it, probably are more victims. Yeah. And all of this sort of new modern investigation that we've just talked about has happened in five weeks. Five weeks following Sandra's grandmother's funeral. That's amazing. Like, yeah, five weeks versus 40 years. Yeah. So in five weeks, Sandra and the detectives have seemingly done more than the original detectives could manage in months. And in March of 1992, uh, Detective McEwen tried to interview the few police officers who had worked on the original case who were still alive. And he came up against a lot, a lot of resistance. The overwhelming attitude was, it's ancient history, leave it there. This is despite the fact that a young girl disappeared and her body has never been found. Nobody ever convicted. It's not ancient history, it's an open investigation. Yeah. Just because it's nearly 40 years past. Um, But McCune was there, he was determined, and he wanted to know how and why Gartshaw slipped through the net in 1957. I think that's interesting, the idea of like, oh, well, it just doesn't matter, it's ancient history. Just because this happened in the 50s doesn't mean that people aren't still affected by it today. Yeah. Just because it happened in the 50s doesn't mean that people aren't still being affected by it. Yeah, plus, I mean, it will have affected the way that these people have raised their own families and have gone through life and, you know, different choices or or situations that they've been in. And so, like, it's, it's, um, you know, it's, it's not just a thing that happened once. It's Mm. a multi-generational trauma in essence and on that light note um (laughs) um, there was one former uh police officer who was willing to talk his name was alex imry and he said that complaints were made about gart shore very often in the area of dunbeth park um he was long suspected of being a flasher in the park and other areas uh, but it was never proven. Um, uh, Gartshore was never interviewed about Moira, despite being well-known to the police as a pedophile and rapist. But despite Alex Emery's cooperation, McEwen still couldn't figure out how or why Gartshore had, you know, slipped slipped through the fingers of the police. Yeah. McEwen did have one idea, however. And he asked Sandra if her father had been a member of the masons and sandra confirmed that he had been and she later found out that the membership of his masonic lodge was 90 percent police officers Uh. and let's be honest it's a very very well-known fact that the masons protect their own they are in the highest positions of power in our society from the police right up to the upper echelons of the government and that is a fact 
And it's at this point that they all start to realise how Garshaw, who was a well-known local paedophile and rapist, uh, who saw was one of the last people to see Moira on the day of her disappearance, never even was interviewed about it, let alone be considered a suspect. And how Sandra found out that the lodge was 90% law enforcement, we're not sure, because the Masons are a very, very secretive group, and the first rule of the Dodgy Handshake Club is you don't tell anyone about <laughs> the Dodgy Handshake Club. <laughs> yeah. Um, those, those Freemasons, they're everywhere. They're all, they're all over U.S. money. They're all over <laughs> the Constitution. Can't, can't escape them. So uh, McEwen decided to interview Gartshore, which makes sense. Um, uh, and despite his very no well-known history in Coatbridge, um, Gartshore had managed to stay out of trouble since leaving Scotland. And from 1965 to when he was interviewed in 1992, he had only been convicted of mortgage fraud and deception. And I love that this guy gets an only been convicted of because... Like, yeah, I just realized like... <laughs> like mortgage fraud and, and deception barely tips the scales for this guy. Yeah. It is definitely an only been. Yeah. Um, and so in March 1992, McEwen, accompanied by DCI Ricky Gray, traveled to Leeds and Gartshore was interviewed for the first time about Moira's disappearance 35 years after she had disappeared. When the detectives showed Gartshore, uh, who's now age 71, a photo of Moira, he was visibly shaken and trembling. And he said, uh, Moira, she looks a lot older there. Chilling. Yeah. What the fuck? That's, yeah, a lot older than what? Yeah. Than when you killed her? Mm. Than when you kidnapped her? Quite possibly. Hmm. So Detectives McCune and Gray continued to work the case for over a year, re-interviewing as many people as possible. And in March 1993, McCune was actually on holiday visiting relatives in Australia. And it turned out that they lived only a few towns away from where Moira's elder sister Janet lived. And she'd emigrated there years earlier. And so in the middle of his family holiday, McEwen went and visited Janet and spoke to her about the case and modern investigation. However, despite all those involved in the new investigation being convinced of Gartshaw's guilt, there was never enough concrete evidence to prosecute. And despite everyone's best efforts, in 1983, the case went cold again. Ten years later, Sandra Brown was contacted by a reporter who told her that a deathbed confession had been made by Alec Keel, who had been in Peterhead prison and was a former cellmate of Gartshore's bus driver friend, Jim. Um, in 1997, Jim was sentenced to 10 years for molesting a child in the lift in a block of flats. Jim was also the older brother of Betty, the 13-year-old babysitter Gartshore had gone to prison for raping in the 50s. Yeah, and this is why we've chosen not to use his full name, not to protect him by any means, <laughs> but out of respect for his sister because um, rape victims do have the right to anonymity Yeah, uh, in this country. I've seen loads of publications get around it by just calling her her first name, but then using his full name and saying that they were brother and sister like later on in the article. And I'm like, mm. you are not protecting her Yeah, like you're supposed to be. Yeah, that doesn't work. So... Jim was suffering from stomach cancer, Parkinson's, and cataracts. And he dictated a letter to Alec Keel to be given to the authorities after his death. Convenient. <laughs> he died in April 1999, and I hate that. It's like a deathbed confession, like, oh, but make sure I'm, you know, after I'm dead so that I can't be prosecuted, I can't be held accountable. Yeah. He confessed that an organised paedophile ring was operating in the Courtbridge area and it includes serial killer Fred West, Dumblane gunman Thomas Hamilton and many local judges, police officers and senior public figures. 
And if anyone is wondering why Fred West, because he did live in Glasgow for a short period of time. And he was actually at one point suspected of being Bible John. Yes. Um, Even though there was zero evidence and nothing really could point him as being Bible John. It's just that he was a serial killer who was there in the right time period. I mean, who who among us hasn't been suspected of being Bible John at this point? I think anyone who's ever set foot in the East End of Glasgow. It's like literally everyone ever. And the confession inferred that Gatshaw had been a part of this paedophile ring and had been protected when he should have been the prime suspect in Moira Anderson's disappearance. Yeah. Uh, And now this is where we go back to the Masonic link. Um, Gatshaw had, according to Jim's confession, been protected by the police at the time. Um, and Gartshore had been, remember, in a Masonic Lodge with mostly police officers and law enforcement. Yeah. Um, and the confession uh, goes on to detail exactly what happened on that day in 1957 when Moira disappeared. Um, supposedly, Moira got on Gartshore's bus, as all the witnesses said she did, and Gartshore somehow convinced her to stay on until the end of the route and get off at the depot with him. Gartshore was then joined by Jim and an unnamed third man, and the three of them dragged Moira back onto the parked bus. They removed her underwear, soaked them in chloroform, and placed them over her face until she passed out. Once Moira had passed out, the three men took it in turns to sexually assault the 11-year-old girl. But when they'd finished with her, they found that they couldn't wake her up. Not too surprising considering she'd been chloroformed and been subject to horrific physical trauma. Yeah. So the three of them decided that they would leave Moira in like the storage trunk area of the bus overnight and then decide what to do with her the next morning. But remember, it was in the midst of a fierce blizzard, a Scottish blizzard, not a weak ass English blizzard. So it's safe to say that when they went back the next morning, the three men found Moira's dead body. She had frozen to death overnight. Jim says, quote, I felt so ashamed as there was no need at all. There was no need for that child to die that night. Now, which bit he's ashamed of? We don't know. The kidnap, the assault, the rape of an 11-year-old girl, or leaving her to freeze to death alone in a bus. Who knows? There's just so many things there to be ashamed of. Like, of course there was no need for her to die. There was no need for any of that to happen. Yeah, like, just leave her alone. (sighs) Um, So Jim's confession said that the weather had hidden their activities. um, And then they moved Moira's body and buried her in Terryburn, which is a tiny stream that runs from an old iron mine in a place called the Witchwood Ponds. Um, Gartshore had taken Sandra on walks near the Witchwood Ponds when she was a child and told her if she ever needed to hide something forever, the ponds would be the best place and that you could hide a body there without it ever being found. Because that's not suspicious or anything. No, how did he, how would he know? Right. Just and also, Mm. like, is that the kind of conversation you have with your small child? Oh, honey, if you ever need to hide a body, you should really do it here. Um, Sandra confronted her father in two thousand and three, and he claimed he was driven by impulse and couldn't control himself. Mm. Bullshit. Poor, poor man. So Gatshaw denied seeing Moira after the two of them got off the bus at the depot. He did, however, know that she was going to buy her mother a birthday card, which he could only have known if he spoke to her at some point. Uh-uh. And Gatshaw was never pursued further, despite the deathbed confession from Jim, and he died in 2006 at the age of 85. Before his death, he told Sandra he regretted everything to do with Moira, but did not give any more details. And throughout his life, he had been interviewed by police about the abuse or assault of 122 children. It's insane. That is... So many. Mm. And the fact that he, like, for the most part, 
just got away with it yeah wasn't punished at all uh, for that sort of thing and wasn't stopped I mean, yeah he he wasn't after he moved to Leeds. so that's 1965 yeah his only convictions were uh deception and mortgage fraud so 65 to his death in 2006 that's like 41 years yeah 41 out of 85 that is not a bad ratio to be never held accountable for some of the most horrific crimes a person can commit yeah seriously um so after Gartshore's death the case kept moving slowly along and in 2013 a 100 meter section of the old Monklands canal was dragged but no remains were found um, and the same year, following a six-year legal battle, the grave of one of Gartshore's friends, who had died at the same time Moira disappeared, was exhumed by police. Sinclair Upton, not to be confused with Upton Sinclair, interestingly, <laughs> um, had been buried the week... Now you've got me worried I've got the name wrong. No, Upton Sinclair's <laughs> an author. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Don't 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 scare me like that. No, but just like that's a that's quite quite the name. <laughs> um, I've never heard Upton used as a first as a yeah as a first name before. I've heard it used as a surname. Look, yeah. Uh, Upton Sinclair. He wrote um, the Jungle. Is a major um, is a novel that exposed the harsh conditions and exploited. Um, lives of immigrants in the United States, in Chicago, and similar industrialized cities, according to Wikipedia. <laughs> um, no, he he was like um, he's like the first muckraking journalist writer in the industrial era, or oh. semi post industrial era in the U.S. So. But this is Sinclair uh, Upton. Learned something? Yeah. <laughs> so, um, Sinclair Upton had been buried the week after Moyer disappeared, uh, but his grave had been dug three days before the funeral. And Gartshore often remarked that, quote, Sinky had done him a favor, which many took to believe that Gartshore had been able to get away with hiding Moira's body because of his friend's death. But unfortunately, um, no remains were found, you know, other than the ones that were supposed to be there. Yeah. Yeah, I wasn't really sure how to word that when yeah. I wrote in the script. I was like, so no, no remains were found. I'm like, hang on. No. There was supposed to be some there. No extra body parts. No yeah. extra remains were found. So the Witchwood Ponds, which are close to where Jim's confession claims the three men dumped Moira's body was also dragged uh, but the only remains that were found turned out to be cattle bones huh. so police also began to reopen abduction murder and historic child abuse cases from the Courtbridge and Airdrie area in the late 1950s and so during the time that Gartshaw was in prison for two years abductions murders and abuse continued which does support the claims of an organized paedophile ring in the area which was covered up by authorities um, so the renewed publicity surrounding Moyer's case in 2013 after Sinclair Upton's family grave was exhumed and the dragging of sections of the old Monkland Canal brought forward new witnesses and uh, the Crown Office's cold case unit reviewed Moyer's case. One of the witnesses had been a childhood friend of Moyer's and said that Gartshore had exposed himself to her and Moira in Dunbeth Park in 1956 and that he knew Moira and called her by name. Um, another witness claimed that Gartshore had confessed to him that he was attracted to young girls and Moira in particular. A third witness also came forward who saw a man dragging a young girl by the arms at a place near a bus terminus in Coatbridge on the 23rd of February 1957, the day that Moira was last seen alive. The description of the young girl matched that of Moira Anderson. And the witness identified Gartshore as the man dragging the young girl. All of the new witnesses were determined to be credible and have legitimate reasons for not coming forward while Gartshore was still alive. 
and on January 31st, 2014, in an almost unprecedented move, the Crown Office officially named Alexander Gartshaw as Moira's killer. This doesn't, however, mean that he is guilty and the case is now solved and closed, especially considering that Gartshaw had died eight years earlier and, you know, couldn't stand trial. But what the Crown Office's announcement meant was that had Gatshaw still been alive, he would have been indicted for Moira's murder with a very strong possibility of conviction at trial. Because, as I said before, the Crown Prosecution Service only indicts if they think they have an extremely high chance of getting a conviction. And so the Crown Office can't declare a person guilty. Only a jury can do that. Mm -hmm. But they believe they now had enough evidence, thanks to these new witnesses, that they would be able to bring Gatshaw to trial had he still been alive, which unfortunately he wasn't. Yeah. Um, and that is the case of Moira Anderson. Now, if you want to find out more about the case, Sandra Brown has written a best-selling book called Where There Is Evil about her life and about Moira's case. And there is a link to it in the show notes and on the further reading section of our website. Um, and yeah, highly recommended, very good book. Um, Sandra Brown is awesome. Um, and just, just to prove her awesomeness, um, in the year 2000, Sandra founded the Moira Anderson Foundation, which helps families affected by child sexual abuse, domestic abuse, cyberbullying, and many other things. Sandra continues to campaign passionately on child protection issues she's been named scots woman of the year scottish citizen of the year and in 2006 she was awarded an obe which makes her an officer of the order of the british empire and this is what the whole obe mbecbe thing is supposed to be about it's about citizens making a difference not about celebrities which is what it's essentially about now um and no matter what you think about like the order of the british empire because it does it is outdated and it does hack back to like the colonial era i can't think of anyone else who deserves it more than someone like sandra brown yeah i totally agree in case you haven't guessed we think she's amazing yeah she's super cool we want to be yeah. her best friend <laughs> um like oh so, yeah what are our other thoughts on this case other than sandra brown is amazing <laughs> <laughs> sandra Bla- brown fan club um i well i mean it's kind of what it comes down to because she she was the single driving force behind Mm. all of this getting looked at again and all of this getting untangled and 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 it was her father like yeah that uh, that is the thing that for me makes it so amazing is that like I think I said earlier, we all love to believe that we would be that kind of person that we could speak out against a family member who'd done that. We'd all be shit scared. Yeah. She probably was. And there's so many people who wouldn't do it. And I just have so much admiration for her that she did. And not only that, she's dedicated her whole life to looking after vulnerable children. She worked as a teacher. She was a lecturer. She founded the Moira Anderson Foundation, she campaigns on child protection issues. Yeah. And she's literally made looking after vulnerable children her life's work and gone after her father for what he did. Yeah. No, it's just really impressive. And, I mean, I think it shows that there is, is value and results can be obtained if people just keep after it like if there's a case that has sort of faded from view or the police have stopped investigating or you know whatever like ordinary citizens can bring it can make back yeah and can make a difference and can find out what happened and like obviously you know you want you want law enforcement to want to investigate these things or you want them to have time to investigate every cold case, but sometimes mm-hmm. it needs it needs a push. And, yeah. and, you know, the people willing to do that are really important people 
I think, in our world. Yeah. And it also highlights law enforcement are not above the law and they need to be held accountable as well. Yeah. And, you know... Whether that's because they've committed crimes themselves or they're just not investigating, which makes them complicit. Yeah. You know, willful... I was going to say willful ignorance, but that's not the right word because it's not, you know... Willful... <laughs> willful ignorance. That's the one. <laughs> Yeah, and I mean, there has been obviously a lot of discussion about this, you know, pedophile ring and the Masonic connection, but honestly, I buy it. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's probably likely because, you know, these things happen everywhere. And yeah. especially if, you know, law enforcement was in their pocket or they you know, had members who were law enforcement, most likely. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's not unbelievable. But, I mean, so you've got that part of the story, which is sort of sensational in a way. But also, yeah. like, I don't know. It. What I think is really important about this case is that you know, 50 years later, there are some answers for yeah. Moira Anderson's family, for Moira Anderson, for, you know, friends and, and neighbors and relatives and, you know, the town, city, town of Coatbridge, like. And also this, not just closure for Moira's family, but also for Sandra's family, yeah. who went through some pretty horrific stuff as well. Yeah. Like, um, so it's, there's, there's value in truth being revealed, you know, like we were saying yeah. earlier, it's not just an ancient history. Like if you resolve some mm -hmm. of these things, it, it, even if everyone involved is, you know, or 95% of the people are, are, are dead and gone, like there's still value in it because it impacts a community yeah. and it impacts families and and yeah so i you know again just circle back around to like thank god for sandra brown kicking ass and taking yeah. names <laughs> so thank you everyone for listening we know that was a really long complicated case and it took us a few attempts to get it all in the right <laughs> order <laughs> But it was one that we really wanted to tell. Or I really wanted to yeah. tell because I found it so interesting. Well, and I I, I like covering sort of Glasgow and Glasgow adjacent or s Scottish cases. Because I think, mm. like, you don't hear as much about them. And there are a lot more of them than people think there are. So, so come um, hang out with us on social media. You can join our Facebook group, which is called Square Mile of Murder, the podcast, appropriately. Um, and tell us what you think about the disappearance of Moira Anderson or whatever you want. Literally anything else. We will talk yeah. about anything. Yeah. <laughs> um, we don't bite. Um, so say hi. Yeah. And uh, if you already follow us on social media, you will know about the British Podcast Awards because we keep talking about it. And we know that it's going to take a miracle for us to win, but we would still love it if you could take two minutes out of your day to vote for us for the Listener Choice Awards. So the link will be in the show notes. All you have to do is click on it, search for Square Mile of Murder and submit your vote. Yep. Um, you have to put your email address in, but you don't have to, like, sign up for anything. It's just they then send you a little email for you to confirm your vote. Yeah. So that people can't, like, spam loads of votes. Um, and, yeah, help feed our egos. Tag us on Instagram or social... On, tag us on Instagram or Facebook and tell us that you voted. It, you know, make us happy. Help other people find us. Um, because that's what we want to do. We want to reach as many people as possible. Yeah. Um... And also, it doesn't cost you a thing. <laughs> no. Um, and if you want to go a step further and monetarily support the show, um, you can become a patron by signing up at 
patreon.com slash score mile of murder. Weirdly, when you search on Patreon's website, we don't come up. I don't know why. It's a weird thing. It's a whole thing. Put in the URL if yeah. you want to. Oh, just, <laughs> or f- oh, go to our website, squaremileofmeta.com, and there is a link yeah, on there. Yeah, there's a direct link. I think it's super strange. Um, but there are ways around it. So um, <laughs> our tiers start at just $1 a month, which uh, gets you these weekly episodes a day early. Um, and sometimes that's a full day if I can get my ass in gear and edit things sometimes timely. Sometimes it's just in time for your evening commute. Yeah, so, which is also which good. is also good. Um, and the cool thing about Patreon too is you should get an email or a notification every time we post something new. So you know you'll know you'll be the first to know quite literally when new exclusive stuff comes out from us. Um, yeah. Uh- we have monthly vlogs which we need to record one this next week that i have not thought of what we're going to do for it yeah yeah we're gonna have to think about that and as well as bonus episodes mini swords and some really cool merch that you can't buy anywhere yeah. so check it out yeah so thank you to everyone for listening and we will be back next week we'll see you then yeah, thanks so much bye, bye.